I'm Afton. And I'm Anna. And, and this, this is, is Grit. Join us in reclaiming what it means to be girls raised in the South. Mm-hmm. So let's get gritty. <laughs> okay, we're back in Anna's closet yet again after the the mom, the Mama Bane Griddles episode. How did you how did you feel it went? She was everything I thought she would be and more. I <laughs> was so impressed. Did she did she remind you of me? Yes, I see I see where you get it from, but I also get what think, from um your lovely bubbly personality. Oh and well, your smarts. Okay. She's okay. very, very smart, um, and well prepared. She was very well prepared. Uh, and funny. Did you learn any I didn't she didn't drop any bombs about my childhood or yeah, I was I'm expecting her to hear the dirt. She's just spill the tea. <laughs> she'll, well, when she comes back from Bali as our field mm-hmm. correspondent, maybe she'll she'll provide some dirt. But yeah, so grits, Mama Bane. Please think about um, embarrassing stories you can tell. In the oh, next, she's got a in lot. The next grits, Mama. She's got Mama a lot. Bane. I thought she was gonna. There was a story of when I was at the lake one time with my other my other Anna, my mm-hmm. other best friend Anna. Uh, and we had been drinking underage and thought that we could cover it, you know, hide it from our parents. And my dad was mowing the lawn and ended up finding, finding a bottle of wine on the side of the, of the hill. <laughs> and so it's an, an ongoing joke. And kid you not, it has been almost a decade. Yeah, because I'm now almost 30. It's been more than a decade. And my dad, every time Anna comes over, he'll still be like, <laughs> remember that bottle of wine I found? <laughs> <laughs> Let's, and anyways. Mm-hmm classic um all right well we've got a great episode uh ready to go locked and loaded for you this time um talking about everyone's favorite subject abortion mm-hmm. <laughs> that's the second it's a time real I- crowd pleaser that's the second time i've made that joke as i said <laughs> when we were canvassing for david bird mm-hmm. everyone's favorite subjects sexual abuse and voting so this is the third kitchen table topic that most tennesseans love to talk about and talking about the war on women, particularly through a Southern lens, I, th- I think we've got a great show for you. All right, so personal updates. Um, just been, for me, I've been running around the state ledge, causing trouble. Uh, I ran into a state representative today who said that uh, there had been a bill filed that would basically make criticizing and harassing a public official a Class D felony, and he deemed it the anti-Afton bill, which I thought was, <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was funny. Yeah. It's a nod. It's a nod to all the work that we've been doing. I've been doing, excuse me. Well, you've been it, doing it. Well, it shows that they're, that they're worried. About yeah, something. they're worried. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They don't, they don't like the blonde, the irrepressible blonde griddle at the state <laughs> legislature. It's really ruining their lunch vibes. So, so that was fun. Uh, Nugget was fixed on Friday, which for the longest time I thought meant that he became a eunuch, <laughs> which is not the case, apparently. When they fix cats, they don't actually become eunuchs. They just, they have a vasectomy. Snip, snip, yeah, snip. Yeah, snip, 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 but mm-hmm. um, we're working with him, you know, I want him, if he decided to be a eunuch, wait, that's a medical procedure, right? Yeah, I think it'd be like oh, okay. Full well, we don't we don't we don't define genders in our household, yeah. so yeah, we want him to be whatever he wants. But he has no sign. the The vet said, "Oh, you know, he'll probably be down for the count for about two days. Make sure he doesn't go outside for two weeks. He's gonna be, you know, a little more mild." No, 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 no. The other thing is that uh, now that we have a pug, uh, I was a very 
dedicated member to the of the pug community in Austin, Texas, where I lived for about nine to ten years. True story. Uh, there was a the Great Pugkin Festival in Austin is a world renowned pug festival uh, that my friend and I. She had a pug named Penny, and we ended up going as the Dixie Chicks one year. <laughs> uh, and so we bought pug onesies from Urban Outfitters, as one does. Uh, and Penny had a little skirt, and we carried my banjo, and she brought her guitar, and we ended up winning winning the Gruesome Twosome Award. <laughs> so that was fun. Uh, found that the pug community exists in Nashville, uh, particularly East Nashville, and so Chris and I are heading to Pug Club on uh, next Saturday. Wow. So it's going to be lit, as the young folks say. Um, another little funny... <laughs> Okay, I know, I'm sure, well, I would love to hear what you, and I, I, I'm sure you get on Instagram after a long day and just mm-hmm. kind of use your thumb, you troll. Uh, well, my detox time at the end of the day is looking at Instagram profiles of bulldogs, and I've become part of the community because I've looked at so many bulldog Instagram profiles that now all of them are following me, and I'm sure it's, again... <laughs> The issue of when I was a member of the Austin Pug Club without a pug, why are you here? Why are you mm-hmm. petting our people? Why are you petting our pugs? And my mom would call me a pugophile because <laughs> I would go out and pet. I would spend day, you know, hours with these pugs. Uh, so it's the same. It's the same, just in a digital, a, a digital stalking mm-hmm. uh, type of relationship, if you will. Uh, but what's been really fun to watch is that one is that I know the most. Uh, followed bulldog in every country, which I said that to Chris and he said, okay, what about in Paraguay? Which wasn't fair because that is such an obscure country in South America, (laughs) but like Brazil and I follow these bulldogs uh, and they're just, and it's a really tight knit community. And so what was really fun to watch digitally is that uh, one of the bulldogs was body shamed uh, for his flat face and his Aww. body structure. So the bulldog community went on the, went on the <laughs> offense and just, I mean, they were, it, it was a great social media campaign. And I just really felt like, you know, in advocacy, it also it's, extends to flat faced animals. So mm-hmm. I was, I was proud to, you know, re- like a few of those posts and, and put out the word. And then something that a bit I want to talk about that happened this week is that, uh, I had, impulsively posted something on Facebook um, because I was very frustrated about people complaining and not really doing a lot. Um, and I think it, well, I, I don't think it was not well received by the disability community because they felt like I was intimating that people with disabilities um, don't do work um, in the sense of physical activity and looking back, it was very ableist and, and I'm very, very sorry. Um, and I learned a lot and I think that, uh, you know, as an organizer, it's, it's always really important to make sure that your movement and your work and your practice is intersectional. Um, and, and a lot of times, particularly in the electoral slash advocacy hybrid world, uh, you're asking people to knock doors. You're asking people to make phone calls. We need to make sure that our practice and, um, the ways that we plug people in, um, and activities is, is accommodating to people with a, uh, with disabilities. So, uh, thank you for everyone that made comments and reached out to me. I really appreciate it. I'm always, I'm always really eager to grow and learn from everyone and to make sure that I'm being as inclusive in my work as possible. So thanks so much. All right, Anna, you're up. 
Anna's low energy tonight, guys, so... Yeah, we're I'm just, falling asleep over here, well, but... we were just listening to Cardi B. She wasn't... I was just trying to get <laughs> the pump-up music in here, so... Um, yeah, so this last week, my mom and sister came to Nashville, um, and I feel like I needed a vacation from my vacation of having <laughs> them here. I love them to death, but when you have people in town that you don't see very often, you, you know, you really want to make the most of it, and so... I mean, you spend 12 hours a day. I mean, I mean my friend visited me, and it's like, I had every hour planned, and yeah. she's like, I just wanted to chill with you and hang and read a book on your couch, and I'm like, <laughs> okay, but the next activity, so yeah. Right, yeah, and it was like freezing and raining, like, it was honestly 18 degrees one day, and it's like March, so it didn't, <laughs> I mean, it was so bad in a lot of ways, but um, we had such a good time. There was only one... Um, big dramatic moment of uh, my yes. mom I'm here for it. Away. Where's the popcorn? Grab the popcorn. I'm ready. I've been waiting for this all week. We were on 12 South and we had already been drinking like in the day and <laughs> day, day drinking. my mom really wanted us to take a shot ski at Embers. Of course. If anyone is familiar. Um, but we decided not to and then she was trying to get pictures of us like at all the murals and everything but there were like lines everywhere and my sister is like she's she lives in South Louisiana, so and she's from North Louisiana, so she's not used to cold weather at all, and she was dying. It was maybe 45 <laughs> degrees, and she could not even stand up, barely. <laughs> um, and so she did not want to wait at the wall, and then, um, yeah, there was uh, some words exchanged, and then my mom, like, stormed off and, like, tried to drive the car away with that. Um, but she just needed a nap, so we came back here. <laughs> Had a nice night. As, nine, as nine most family outbursts, you, you look back and you think, that person just needed a nap. Mostly it's either food, alcohol, or sleep related. That's right. Like, That's any right. Any kind of disagreements. Um, but no, we had a really good time. And um, I'm glad that there wasn't more dramatic because when you get all three of us together, it's like. It's a lot of, That's a lot of estrogen. Yeah, yeah. And Al- yeah, Alex is out of town. So um, then I also did, I, I don't do a lot of public presentations like I'm still getting used to public speaking and I get so nervous which is weird just so in college like I was cheer captain and so I led entire pep rallies like thousands of people I cheered at games in front of you know sometimes like 80,000 people but you weren't cheering about health policy it's true true um but it seems weirder that I was like okay with that like in a short skirt like jumping around <laughs> um but yeah something has Maybe happened just wear a cheerleading uniform just show up and just own it just wear like a full like a red lip like a bow <laughs> full cheer just, makeup and um, just do it. <laughs> I think that might have been it because I was like, I'm here to talk about maternal you know? mortality <laughs> I think it's just just being young and like looking young and and not you know, being confident and like mm-hmm. my knowledge or my expertise, but I actually um, presented like on the work that we do. So that was a pretty easy topic to um, talk about and it was well received. So, and I wasn't even nervous at all, which is the first time that's ever happened. Okay. So step in the right direction. Um, we've also been working on a few different new campaigns that we're focusing on because um, we're seeing so many pregnant women not get health insurance that they should have. Um, and so we're trying to explore that. I'm sure I'll talk about it more in the future, but we've also seen over a hundred thousand kids lose coverage in the last couple of years. So we're, we're working on what can we do, um, to figure out how to get moms and, um, especially pregnant women who like need coverage, like when they're 
knee coverage, like they're already pregnant, like they're going to have the baby soon. Right. <laughs> so it's weird that they keep getting delayed or like not accepted. Um, more than weird. It's probably illegal. So we'll see what that Ooh, turns out to That's be. my wheelhouse. Yeah. Um, <laughs> We, I, don't we condone like, it. I, I don't condone any <laughs> illegal activity. I'm just saying that that's my wheelhouse. Borderline legal, borderline illegal. Thank you. You know, it's always juicy to talk about anything that could involve litigation. So <sighs> it's just just the thought of it. Like I'm salivating. Juicy. You can't see me. Um, and talking about illegal things, uh, also block grants. <laughs> God. God. Um, block grants uh. are illegal. That's not the messaging we're going to the, with. To the, to, the, to the non-Medicaid expert griddle, what is a block grant? Two senses. I tried to make Kristen explain block grants in two senses, and she got so flustered. She started. <laughs> yeah, so right now the way Medicaid is funded, it's a state-federal partnership. So um, for every dollar the state spends, the uh, federal government will spend about $2. It depends on the state. but it, and, it, and it fluctuates as you need it, as enrollment drops. It's less money from the state, less money for the federal government. Um, but this would take the entire funding for all of Medicaid from the federal government and put it in one lump sum um, that would grow at a, a gradual rate slower than how it's growing now because medical medical costs are so high and grow every year, um, which makes the program less flexible and is just a way to um, you know, take some of the, the legal guardrails off the program and we'll eventually end up with um, either eligibility being cut, services being cut, or provider payments being cut. And none of those things are good, um, especially when we have increasing numbers of uninsured people in Tennessee of all ages, um, children being the most alarming because no child should go without health insurance um, with all the programs that we have and how they overlap. So, yeah, it's... Um, Pretty bad. We've been on defense pretty much this whole year, which already, which um, feels like since 2016, so it's annoying. been. Oh, yeah, yeah. So it, it just keeps going. You would think it would get better at some point, especially now that we, um, you know, we're not constantly looking at congressional threats um, as we have been up until um, this last election. So, yeah, there's still a lot of. Lot of and we're going to talk a little bit threats. about the bad bills running through southern legislatures today so it'll be for all of you urban griddle urban blue griddles <laughs> take take yourself out to lunch and pat yourself on the back for not having to deal with this shit <laughs> yeah it is actually atrocious and they there's really i mean like i applaud the work that we do especially you being on the ground but like they don't feel accountability to voters whatsoever uh i mean like I've said this before, but, like, most of our legislators have no earthly idea, like, about actual facts or reality. <laughs> they just kind of make things up, and they don't... Like, please run for office. Oh. That's all I'm saying to anyone that's listening to this, please has run. any interest in this, please run for office. Like, I'm begging you. And not Gloria Johnson, because you're already a rep, oh, and yeah. you already retweet us. Number one griddle. Thank you. Uh, like, our, we will find a district for you. Yeah, I will, I will personally come down there and organize the district for you. <laughs> We're pleading, please. Uh, and then lastly, your update that we just, you told me. Oh, yeah. So um, in my apartment, my bougie midtown apartment, <laughs> yeah. the doors, like, don't shut very well. Um, it's not very bougie. Yeah, it's not very bougie. So we have to, like, so our cats are, you know, uh, 50 pounds. So <laughs> they can they can just push the doors uh, because they're kind of, like, They're really doors. crossbred with 
tigers, but yeah, something something happened there. Um, and so they like we would come home, and the doors to the closet would be open, which is like all our clothes, shoes, everything, or whatever. And I just bought. And they're just lounging. What are they doing when you? They're eating things. They literally like tear up my clothes and like eat pieces of like clothing. She's like such a dog. Like she's just a puppy thing. We walked in and she held up this this beige tank top and she literally like half the strap is missing. She's like, I just don't know where it went. <laughs> it's in their stomach. I'm sure. I'm sure. They're going to throw it out. I, throw it up or poop it out later. Oh my gosh. It's so bad. It's like, please, if anyone has advice about how to handle cats. I mean, and I always thought they would grow out of it. They're about to be three. You and, I you, think you and Chris need to start a, a cat collaborative discussion group because he's always like, I read on the internet that I'm like, Chris. They're like so sensitive. Yeah. Everything I read on the internet is like. They're, you're stressing them out. And I'm like, I don't know what to do. <laughs> Should I move out? <laughs> I think I'm the problem. You're, you're the problem. Should you move out? I'm fine. <laughs> well, they're ruining my stuff. And, you know, that's what it is. So. Well, I needed a good laugh before we started talking about... <laughs> and on uh, that note, abortion. And on that note, let's talk about abortion. Okay, great. Um, so the reason we're we're talking about this... Oh, I'm sorry, I can't stop laughing about the cat joke. Okay. <laughs> Pull it in. Rank it in. Full. <sighs> okay. So, uh, the reason we're talking about this, uh, particularly now, um, in this moment in time, is because the legislative session... Oh, God, that was 20 minutes of intro. That's fine. That's fine. We, <laughs> no, it was fine. a good intro. It's fine. It's, it'll get people in the joyous mood to endure what we're about to talk about. Mm-hmm. Uh... So we're in the midst of a, a brutal and volatile legislative session at the Tennessee legislature. Uh, and unfortunately, we are not the anomaly. Uh, Southern, particularly Southern states like Kentucky, Georgia, South Carolina are uh, really dealing with a wave of extremist legislation, particularly that is um, I would deem as, as anti-woman. Uh, so just to give you an idea of some of the bills and I, and I won't, you know, and this is the difference, what I love about Anna and I, Anna would be like bill number 731 Mm -hmm. and on, uh, caption bill 1A. So I'm going to give you the griddle low down dirty, uh, on what's going on. Uh, so (laughs) crazily enough in 2019 in Tennessee, we are still shackling pregnant women who are in prison. Um, and there have been cases throughout the state where babies have died, um, the, the babies have died within the womb um, for women who have been pregnant and lawsuits have been have been filed. But more importantly, like it's 2019 and we're still shackling women. And as you know, shackling is remnants of our um, very destructive past with with uh, slavery in the southern United States. Second bill that's being pushed through is, as Anna uh, talked about previously, is that we want to take prenatal and food assistance away from pregnant immigrant women, um, which is terrible absolutely terrible um and do, are you gonna talk a little bit do you just want to give two senses about that yeah so actually there's a little bit of movement right now to try to add some other stuff to it like um not being able to get a birth certificate for a child born to a a, um, oh, a woman who's undocumented even though they're <gasps> literally born in the u.s so they're citizen children um which there's a bill there's a bill to revoke that yeah 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 so, they, yeah, they keep just trying to expand this and attack, like, anything to do with um, women who are pregnant. And we're, we're going to talk about this, the whole idea of, like, pro-life, the pro-life movement in the South. But how un-pro-life is that? Like, it's not about 
the woman's immigration status is about like she has a child in her and that child is a Tennessean. So And the whole point of making sure that Tennessee women have prenatal care is to make sure that the babies are taken care of and you're not right. and you're investing in in early health care so that the child grows up to be healthy and productive citizen. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, it's just a really cruel bill, but we're kind of caught in this hard place of like not wanting anyone to know that pregnant undocumented women can can get any of these services which is the really really sad state of our politics (laughs) um the third bill up is uh so this is and i'll talk about a documentary that i saw last year uh that was uh the event was held by uh, an organization that i'm involved with healthy and free tennessee um, two of my really close friends who who do a lot of work in reproductive rights in tennessee Uh, but there is a bill it's called the fetal assault bill And what it does is, as a pregnant woman, if you have your baby and you test positive for drugs, you are then jailed immediately. Uh, And in the documentary, which I'll mention later, uh, there is testimony from women who are on screen talking about how they were still bleeding from from the birth of their child and they were hauled off to prison in shackles. And this is happening in Alabama and all across the South. So, um, and the last bill that's being filed is... uh, Although extremely unconstitutional, they they uh, the bill HB seven seven to ban abortion after six weeks, which is very unfortunate because most women don't find out they're pregnant until after six weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, that's after one cycle um, and a few weeks to kind of gauge that you're oh I'm not I'm not I'm feeling a little different. Um, and, and things are so bad here in Tennessee that. Uh, a lot of these share these stories and this legislation has been shared by the New York Times. Uh, last week, it was featured in Time Magazine, and Kamala Harris, who's a presidential candidate for 2020, uh, retweeted the Time Magazine article, which I think um, portends presidential candidates talking about the state of the South and how we are seeing we have one country, but we are seeing a. a a, a divide that is not just political, but it's a divide when it comes to access to healthcare, a divide when it comes to reproductive access, like everything across the board, we are seeing a tale of two, what was the Medicaid? The tale of two, oh, a tale of two, two states, a tale of two countries. It's yeah. really true. Yeah. States who have expanded Medicaid and states that haven't expanded Medicaid. And it's mm-hmm. the same for all of this. And it's just, uh, well, anyway, so just to highlight that the work that's, that's taking place in this legislation, um, so the bad bills that are being passed are, are being uh, are simmering to the top of national the national political discussion, but also for the people on the ground, my fellow community organizer at Planned Parenthood, um, who's who's just a fierce a, a fierce person in general. Um, but all of us on the ground that are are working to defeat these bills, the louder we are, um, the louder these issues are going to be heard at the top. So um, it's it's really important. Uh, so a bit of a historical context about abortion. Before the 1820s, abortion was not illegal, um, and it was widely practiced till about 1880, at which time uh, most states ended up banning it, except to save the life of a woman. And what was really interesting is that anti-abortion legislation was part of a backlash against the growing movements for suffrage and birth control. Um, Even more interesting was that the uh, main steward uh, slash promoter of um, outlawing abortion was the American Medical Association, which was looking to consolidate its authority over all medical procedures uh, across the country. Um, so, uh, yeah, AMA, man, those guys, those are the Bernie, those are the bros. I won't say Bernie bros, but those are the bros. Yeah, the also until they had their 
there. Oh, the Rift. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Another episode for another day. Um, by 1965, all 50 states had banned abortions with, with some exemptions for rape and incest. And so what we started to see, um, internal reforms began in the late 1960s after we, I'm sure, I'm sure a bunch of reproductive rights advocates looked around and said, wow, all 50 states banned abortion. Probably we, we need to deal something, do something about this. So re- these internal reforms started to be uh, again in the late 1960s, um, which loosened the tight grip on power that the old line New Deal Democrats, so, you know, the FDR Democrats, um, had long exercised within the party. And remember, if you remember last episode, we talked about Fannie Lou Hammer, um, who was screaming at the top of her lungs that the Democrats didn't represent her interests, which I'm sure was the case for reproductive rights, particularly in the Democratic Party, um, which will be interesting to see on the 2020 national stage, Mm -hmm. how they talk about abortion and and, uh, reproductive rights access. I'm sorry, reproductive access. And so these decentralization measures aim to give previously underrepresented groups, such as women, greater stake in the party governance. Um, And so feminists from highly organized political interest groups like now, um, he did the call and wanted to move the party left on issues such as abortion. Um, And so guess what? 1973, all women can be grateful for Roe versus Wade. Um, which declared most existing state law abortions unconstitutional. And this decision ruled out any legislative interference with the first trimester of pregnancy and put limits on what restrictions could be passed on abortions in later stages of pregnancy. And so with this, because it finally had reached the Supreme Court, uh, we saw a, well, we're still continuing to see, uh, an escalation of anti-abortion conflict and violence. And so... After Roe versus Wade, the next uh, election, the next big presidential election was in 1976. And this is where the stark party lines were drawn. Um, So what happened was the Democratic Party affirmed its support for legal abortion and moved further left on the issue. And what you saw was the Republican Party vowing to outlaw it. Um, But this wasn't always the case. And originally, many Republicans initially supported legalized abortion. And this was through what what we've seen now through the Tea Party and the libertarian uh, type agendas, particularly in southern states, that they will pass legislation that gets the government out of their bedroom and off their bodies. Um, And so they believed letting women, not lawmakers, decide whether to give birth was in line with their ideological affinity for individual rights and small governments, uh, which is also striking because we've seen such a diminishing of individual rights at the state level uh, when it comes to Republican-controlled legislatures as well as uh, governorships. I talked a little bit about the bills that that, were, that are being passed at the Tennessee legislature. Um, and so what we've seen now are that abortion conflicts have been playing out at the state level uh, with attempts to change the assumed and legal date of viability of, of pregnancies uh, to remove exemptions such as rape or incest from abortion bans. So <laughs> the Tennessee bill, I just... I can't even begin to go into it, but uh, there was an exchange between the bill's sponsor and a Democratic representative from Nashville during the committee hearing that would have banned abortion after six weeks, which inevitably ended up passing uh, on the in the House. But uh, there was an exchange when the Democratic representative said, so say that a coach raped a young 15-year-old girl, do you believe that that, ch- that that child should carry the baby to term? And the bill sponsor said yes, and the Democratic representative 
responded and said, do you not see evil in that? And he said, no. So that's where we are. Another, uh, at the state level, what they're trying to pass is to require ultrasounds before any termination um, or to increase the requirements for doctors and buildings performing abortions, which is what we saw, you know, and I remember in graduate school, we had to, you know, we had, you know, various theses and uh, there were two of my uh, peers in my graduate class who did their project on the distance of abortion providers to areas with the highest abortion or the highest pregnancy rates, uh, in the state. And it was just, and I just remember having goosebumps and thinking, I mean, that, and that was in 2000, uh, like 2014. I mean, and, and, and it's still, and it's gotten worse. Um, and so in Tennessee, for example, we only have abortion clinics in Knoxville, Nashville, and Memphis in the urban cores. Um, and so you, you're seeing this division among rural women that they're not getting, the same access to this type of healthcare as their urban peers. Um, and then another restriction that they're placing on is the time, the time, what is it called? Where they make you wait 48 oh, yeah, hours. Yeah, it's like a waiting period. A waiting period. So mm-hmm. the so you have to wait eight, 48 hours uh, from the time of your first appointment to the time you get the abortion, which is also problematic for rural women, not only rural women, but women who don't have the means to travel to Nashville or Memphis, um, and and what are they going to do? I mean, it's just, oh, it's so messed up. And so the rollback of abortion access in these states uh, has taken place for the better half of the last decade. And so after the 2010 elections, we've seen a wave of conservative governors and state lawmakers with more than 400 state laws passed to restrict abor- abortion access in some way. And it's just like every year, like there's not, a br- you can't, swim up to the top and take a breath. It's every year. And it's like variations of heinous bills that are coming down. And now that we have a super majority in the, in the house, in the legislature, as well as a Republican governor, who's very anti-choice. Um, it's just, it's unbelievable. And I've heard that the strategy for that is they've been, you know, stacking the courts and ha- they've had this right. judicial strategy for so long. For so that long. Now it's bared out at the Supreme court and they're just trying to get litigation going in the States to, eventually appeal up to the exactly yeah. exactly and for all of you uh please 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 uh, i don't know if it's on hulu or netflix but there's a movie called birthright a war story and when i said birthright because you know israel Isra- mm-hmm. israel pays for birthrights that's a whole other story but uh birthright a war story by and i'm going to mispronounce your name but sivia tamarkin please 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 it please watch this it 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 left such an imprint on me that I still think about it today, um, particularly in the climate that we see ourselves. And it, and it really outlines this Southern, like this decade long strategy that the pro pro life, which we need to take back the narrative, but the pro life movement has, uh, (laughs) has executed and, and underneath a lot of our watch. I mean, that's the problem is that all of us were just you know, I'll speak for myself. It's like, I wasn't that politically active. I mean, I canvassed for Lloyd Doggett and Austin representative one time, uh, summer, but like, you know, I didn't, I, I just feel, I just feel so guilty that I didn't know that all of this was going on. And now we're in a terrible state, um, that we're not even, we don't even have enough political or social capital to combat this agenda. Just to end, you know, most Americans are really uncomfortable with abortion, yet they believe in certain circumstances and not just a narrow few when it should be legal, like rape and incest, but apparently not to Michael Van Huss. 
that's the representative in Tennessee that uh, sponsored the bill. They believe that women should have control over their bodies and also that abortion is akin to death. Where they struggle is in deciding when each principle deserves to take priority. Yeah, it's been it's been wild. So Anna's going to talk about the intersection of reproductive rights and politics, and and I'm sure she'll outline, um, provide more context, uh, nuances to what I just discussed. Yeah, so I want to start with talking about the history of more so of the larger uh, reproductive health um, landscape, and I had always heard that that Margaret Sanger that there was some some stuff in in her politics that um, was unsavory at best mm-hmm. uh, about um, her her involvement in the eugenics movement, but I did a little bit of reading before this episode, and it's more of a it, it it's been it's been um, amplified in a way that I don't think is fair to her legacy of founding Planned Parenthood, um, but it is interesting to think about uh, that that you don't operate in a vacuum. So right. when she, so when this was happening and when um, feminists were advocating for birth control as a means of um, female empowerment and um, how that intersected with the suffragette movement and how some were anti, you know, anti-abortion. Yeah. yeah. Um, but thinking about her in that instance, it was more like a political strategy because if you look back at most of the prominent um, – scientists and public health leaders in the 1920s and 1930s they all pushed for eugenics and so there's like positive and negative eugenics which positive is just that people who are considered fit which usually meant white um i'm using quotations because i don't believe any of this um were were um encouraged to reproduce whereas people um uh, in institutions that were deemed uh uh feeble-minded or the these terms that um that also uh, pathologized poverty um, Mm. and lack of education. Um, They were oftentimes forcibly sterilized. They, it it just became the, it just became the popular science to think that, um, you know, the good should reproduce and the, this has to do with some population control type things. And Margaret Sanger was not like adamantly opposed to this. She said some stuff about, um, you know, she wasn't, pro-eugenics like on a racial level like some other people were um but she had to play into the politics of the time and the and the political strategy for her was that um to get more capital like the I'm talking about these are scientists at Yale and Harvard and like so to play into that uh they were supportive of birth control for this um you know pure race or wait hold on I have to can you tell the pod if they don't know who Margaret Sanger oh Margaret Sanger founded Planned Parenthood Okay. And then the second thing is, so what I hear you saying is that in order to kind of promote her agenda in a way that gave her capital to do what she wanted to do, she had to play into some of these Mm -hmm. politics that were happening at the time. Yeah. And to us, it sounds so absurd and just horrible, but I mean, there, there's legacies of that, of this up until the 1980s with, um, sociobiology which we can talk about another time but there's always been this way people try to legitimize racial differences um and uh differences like class differences um they've always tried to do this and now we're finally getting to this point with when we're talking about adverse childhood experiences and brain science um that we're actually getting to a place where we're understanding the effects of poverty in a way that doesn't um other or or uh, marginalized people, um, like, historically. 
but yeah, I, I think it's like the, just that she was alongside these scientists, but this was just common. This is what the papers read and this is, you know, um, but I can see how that's super sensitive, especially with her being a white woman. And, um, you know, there are a lot of questions about Planned Parenthood Global. There's there's this thought of like the, the histories of colonization um, and where where are Planned Parenthoods? They're usually in low income areas. Mm-hmm. Um, and that there's a host of reasons why I'm not I'm not like anti Planned Parenthood. But I think this gets us all back to the to what are the philosophical questions and we always have to examine those about like in the context of our political um, our political world that we live in. So there are different ways that you can view birth control and abortion and access to it and where is it and who has it and who's encouraged to use it and who's not. And there's the human rights lens of, you know, our 14th Amendment right. Um, and then there's the libertarian. We have the right to privacy and to make the decisions that, about what we do with our body. And you can see it through the libertarian lens, which is kind of that same constitutional argument, but is a more political argument in that they just believe that the government does not have a role um, in those decisions about your body. And the public health lens, which is more practical and is honestly where I find myself the most. It's abortion has always happened. Um, I could hopefully find an article that says something about the history of like witchcraft and like midwives and, um, and natural, uh, like remedies and and birth controls and, and, um, to, to induce abortion, um, certain herbs and things like that. Um, and how that was tied with like accusations of women being witches. Super interesting. Um, but I see it more from this practical public health lens of, you know, this is going to happen um, because we have made grave errors in the way that we educate people about sex and the lack of female empowerment over the years of their own reproductive rights. Like, I think what we need to look at is what causes negative outcomes. And honestly, being a young parent, being a parent, you know, under 24, actually the indicators are pretty negative, especially with teen pregnancy. And I'm not saying, like, I know teen moms that are great moms. Right. And, like, it's not to say that, like, that shouldn't have happened. But – and I do believe everything happens for a reason. Like, I, I – but at the same time, I'm, like, what are – what is going to improve outcomes for everyone and um, improve our society? And I think the most informed, autonomous citizens that we can have – who don't feel like they have to have a baby, who don't feel like they have to have an abortion. Like, I don't think that, you know, I think the ideal situation is that women feel like they have the choice, pro-choice. That's a, that's where I um, land on that. And I think we, we have an unequal society when women don't have that choice um, and when they're forced to go through a, a very, very strenuous medical process because they don't have a choice and and I mean we even see that with involuntary we'll talk about this a little bit later but like there are a lot of women who are pregnant plan to have the child and then for reasons out of their control they cannot have the child whether it's going to endanger their life or the baby is not viable or um they're going to die shortly after they're born and the procedures that we lump into this big category of abortion, there's mm. a, a, several of them. Doctors need to be learning them. Right. 
Because it can happen. Because they can happen. It the moral weight that is put on it of the situation of should this woman be having this or not based on someone's conception of if they if they're if it's morally right. I want every doctor that I ever see to, to know how to, to do know that. how to do these right. procedures. And because it's such it's, a, it's healthcare. Yeah, and it's a phenomenon in the South to to it's a it's some type of cultural sig- signal in med school to not learn the procedures on principle. Um, and I'm not ever going to OBGYN. I think that's one thing to know. Like, even though I'm not, you know, planning to be pregnant anytime soon, I think, like, you should know if your doctor is is educated or not, basically, right. on, like, what these procedures are used for. Um, but anyway, the, the rigmarole that we put women through to actually get the procedure affects all women whether the pregnancy is wanted or not and that's it's something that I because I went to the rally when this bill was being passed on the house floor and I got into an altercation with a woman who you know was yelling at me and I said you know how is this how is this pro-life how is this bill pro-life and the Planned Parenthood chant that was taking place at the same time was pro-life, it's a lie, you don't care if w- women die, which I'm sure you'll talk about later, mm-hmm. which is, like, this war on, on on women and the mother, which is, like, not within their pro-life lens. Mm-hmm. But my thing was, can you, and I asked her, I was like, can you make an, can you step outside of yourself and look at abortion as a healthcare procedure that your, that your physician should probably know how to do should there be complications with your daughter's pregnancy? And she was like, well, God, blah, blah. And I was like, they can't, they can't do it. Mm-hmm. Like, if you take, if you ask them to take God out of it or, like, ask them to get off their self-righteous high horse, they can't do it. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that takes us to, like, back to the philosophical questions. So, I mean, we can talk endlessly about what the practical realities of bringing a child into the world are. And, you know, you hear the arguments of, like, they should just give the baby up for adoption, but then you have to actually carry the baby the right. whole time. which and is an emotional it, and physical is, toll on... yeah. And, and we, so we talk about, we can talk about how, like, poverty is, plays into a lot of this, too. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you know, everyone has an opinion on this because they were born. (laughs) So they're like, (laughs) it's just like, like, everyone has. So you're telling me that. Has, like, metaphysical views or, like, existential view, you know, of some sort. They have, they have some, That's such a philosophical question. It's like, because you were born, because you exist. Yeah, it's like, it's like, you just have an opinion. So, but at the same time, like, think about how situational and individual every woman's each pregnancy of each woman at any time is and how many factors come into play with that um and especially culturally in the south i think it's really interesting to think about and we've always had this controversy over it but i just really wish that we would have and maybe we missed this maybe it was in the 70s i don't know but i wish that we would have a more rigorous public debate the way that we can debate other bioethics issues so when we're talking about um you know, like euthanasia or mm, so complicated. Yeah, the it's, so, community. it's so yeah, complicated yeah. and brain death. And mm. I mean, these are these are thoughts that inter- do intersect with religion, but we're able and even just the idea of cloning and stem cells and IVF. And we deal with very intensely complicated, I would say even more complicated than abortion in some ways, bioethical issues on a daily basis. And Sure, people have opinions, but 
for the most part, like, we have to think about what this actually means for policy. And we keep just throwing these stupid, restrictive policies that are harmful at the wall and because of moral or ethical reasons when we're not even having... Right, right, right. And we're not even having the same conversation. So I think... I just really wish that we could talk more about how if the ultimate goal is for less women to have abortions, then we look at policies like the Affordable Care Act. The Affordable Care Act, by far, I mean, in 2017, we had the lowest rate of abortion since Roe v. Wade Wow. went through the Supreme wow. Court because of the Affordable Care Act, because of access to birth control. Mm. You know, teaching abstinence-only education, sex education in schools makes teen pregnancies go up like and I there's actually a really interesting public health study that was done in Colorado because they started providing free U, IUDs to um high school students because they were having in, in certain pockets they were having like upwards of like one-fourth to one-third of teenage girls wow. were getting pregnant um because they had no education in schools or anything and they just started providing this uh low-cost health care service and they saved 70 million dollars <laughs> <laughs> wow the cost of teen pregnancy i mean it really like if you're thinking public health if you're thinking numbers if you're thinking reducing abortions right. their abortion rate fiscal plummeted. conservatism yeah if you really want to have those arguments like honestly if you want abortion to be lower then you need to teach people about safe sex and give the and give men and women access to birth control yeah you know what if men could get pregnant there would be birth control at every ATM across the country. Mm-hmm. Bottom line. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It would not have to go through the... The, the shit that we have to yeah. deal with. I mean, I think I talked about three different strands. So we've got this philosophical of, like, what is life and what? Are, how do you balance these rights between... Well, that's more political. But, like, just the philosophical of... Of how do we think about... I mean, it is weighing. It is weighing. It's the bioethical. It's like it is weighing like the women women's rights against the fetus in some ways, um, but it, you have to think about that in the context of the politics of it. So, and, and the cultural, the cultural lens too, and that has a lot in the South, obviously, to do with religion and how that intersects with the political parties is super interesting here because, as you said, like, yeah. Republicans have not historically been um, necessarily all on one side. And Democrats, too. I mean, you can look at really prominent pro-life Democrats. Um, and I think I, I think there's interesting examples to learn from, like Hillary Clinton saying abortion should be safe, legal, and rare. And Tim Kaine being incredibly Catholic and pro-life. And guess what? He spends a heck of a lot of time defending people on death row because he is pro-life. Mm. He does not believe that the government should kill right. people. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And But he, he votes pro-choice. But, but you have, and you have he, Republicans he, that are pro-capital punishment and pro-life putting more value on the fetus than the woman's life. Yeah. And why is that? Can you, I mean, are you going to, like, what's your hot take on the value of why they the perception is that the fetus is much more valuable than the woman. I mean, that's how it as as like yeah. not in I that think it, I think train it of speaks thought. to I think it speaks to the long history of misogyny. Like there's mm. a reason why mm. there's not a lot of Republican female elected officials. <laughs> like and, and they're dwindling. They, I mean they're losing them every day. Right. And and now like millennial women are the <laughs> least rep like like 
we have moved as a block, like, from Republican, you know, leaning towards Republican, too. Besides Brenna Spencer. Don't even get me started on Brenna Spencer. <laughs> she's, ugh, she's a local national native that's uh, far right, that is always throwing out anti-choice rhetoric. Anyways. Yeah. Anyways. But I, I just think it, I think it's a long history of, um, and, and women can be, can be misogynistic. Like. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. like, I mean. I don't know if there's a different word for it, but like women do play into patriarchal. Well, it's internalized oppression. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they they have it's they have grown up it. They have grown up in it. They have it is the air. It is in the air that they breathe. Yeah, so I, I think it's just a a need to control women, and I mean, if you look at if you look at Desjardins, like oh god, Scott Desjardins is a fourth congressional district rep who is a physician extreme far right um and has paid for on the record two abortions to his mistresses yeah that's where we are so it's not really about their religion but what does that have to do with the state legislature you know (laughs) it's just like it's just especially when like they're just using this is simply a political game with like women's lives but they don't look at i mean they really believe that they will go to hell if they support pro-choice legislation yeah i i believe that it's just it's it's so wild the 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 intellectual disconnect is what does that mean for the baby when it's one what does that mean for the baby if it's to the mother of an undocumented or the mother's undocumented like where like what is the threshold obviously after six weeks (laughs) (laughs) it's just um yeah, six weeks till birth, and then <laughs> that's it. You're done, though. You're done. No healthcare, no education for you, my friend. And what's your, you know, I did some deep, deep values based canvassing. So, um, side note: so there's a, a the leadership lab is out of San Francisco, and during Prop Eight in California, when gay marriage, I forget what the the, the intricacies of the bill, but basically they went out into these neighborhoods and a lot did a lot of. Um, deep values-based canvassing is what they called it. But what it was is that instead of regular canvassing where you go to a door and you knock and you speak to someone for 40 seconds, they would go at times for 20 minutes and they Mm -hmm. continued to go back and they would rate how people felt about gay marriage at the beginning and after the conversation. And they did that for a period of months and they really saw a lot of development and progress on that end. So Planned Parenthood has adopted it. And I went out to Rutherford County um, and spoke to people on abortion. And it really was like I got into these people's living rooms and I, and mm-hmm. I kept, you know, I was like, well, what about this? Like, what about this? And there wasn't hostility. There wasn't screaming. So I just wonder if 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 we're ever going to get to a place because you and I both certainly I mean, if you know, my I've got family members that if they listen to this, they would condemn me. I mean, they already have mm-hmm. condemned most mm-hmm. of my family to go hell. But, you know, where where is like where do we come to, you know, is there compromise? Like, where's the space where this, we can have a discussion about this and or change minds, like, and particularly as millennial females? That's a really good question. And I think, I think it continues to be, and I, or at least my eyes are open to it more than ever, is that it's like a resoundingly divisive issue. And there's like, people vote simply on abortion and, and, and court, you know, for the, to stack the courts in extension of that, like for abortion. And they're told this, like, I mean, we need to stop letting like Rick Santorum like preach at a church on the campaign trail. Cause he did that in my town. Like when he was running for president, they literally let him behind the pulpit. And like, 
So there's just such an intersection of like conservative politics and evangelical Christianity that um, is so pervasive in the South. And this is an issue that like particularly, I mean, I think men use it for political gain and I do think they believe it, but I think women, it really, really affects them. And like, I have a lot of friends who would not even like, would not even think about engaging with me in a conversation about this. Um, and would even say, you know, so-and-so is a baby killer. Like, but I think we, when, when we show the history, like, I think what we're doing here is starting to move in the right direction of, hey, this is going to happen whether it's legal or not. And this is the history of, you know, a lot of people shy away from feminism, but it is becoming more mainstream as far as, like, a concept um, and equality. Like, I see more and more, like, mainstream or, like, even white right-leaning people, like, speaking up about International Women's Day. And, like, it's just becoming, like, much more of a thing to have girl power and, like, um, and that and it not be associated with, uh, you know, bra burning or whatever. Right. Um, and so I do think there's, like, a future for this, but we've got to change the rhetoric away from these are angry feminist women we can't control who are just doing this heinous act or getting, because they or don't getting have abortions God. for birth control. It's yeah. Like, yeah. And this is a, a fact that Planned Parenthood uses all the time, which is most abortions are from women who have had more than one or have, have more than one child. Like these are like yeah. moms that are, have, you know, un, 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 unexpected pregnancies. And that's another big question. Like the CDC has, I, I forget what the statistic is, but I think it's like somewhere close to 50% of all births are unintended. And that is a public health nightmare for a country. Statistically. Yeah. Yeah. yeah statistically, just looking at like, the data. Right? I mean, like that should not be happening. Like, and I know some people leave it up to God, whatever, <laughs> but like, and that's not to say that there will be a time where we have zero unintended pregnancies, but that it's just, it's like, if you look at like, if 50% of the population had Ebola, yeah. You know, like they would, it, it, I mean, it would be yeah. chaos and it would be a national declaration of emergency. And and if we're being honest, it affects like women so much more. A, a quarter of the households are uh, a single parent and I think 80 something percent of those are women. So almost all single parent households are ran by women and they are raising the baby alone and that affects them for the rest of their life. Right. Like the trajectory of the child and the mother. Um, and I mean, it's a women's issue. Like through and through. I mean, it's an economic issue. It's a public health issue. And that's how I like to look at it because it's like, we can debate all day about like, oh, just wouldn't it be great if everyone could just have the baby and then the baby be taken care of forever. But that's not the world we live in. Like, I think if we actually talk about reality, we could get somewhere um, past the platitudes of someone saying, well, I know plenty of churches that would take care of the baby. Like, that's not true. Right. There, I mean, our foster system is stretched beyond belief. It, I don't know. I don't know. There's, and there's no, and particularly in the South where the issues are, I mean, all they vote is abortion, gays, and guns. Mm-hmm. And immigration. I mean, Bredesen lost now on immigration. immigration. Yeah, now yeah. it's immigration. Yeah. Immigration has replaced gays. Well, not at the, not at the Tennessee legislature. Yeah. <laughs> but 
and there's no resources being invested into these rural areas. And and you drive, I mean, I'm, I'm a state, you know, I'm statewide in Kentucky and Tennessee. All you see are these pro-life billboards mm-hmm. and there's no, you know, I'm the one rural organizer working statewide in Tennessee. There's a lot of us in Kentucky, but it, they're not having these conversations about abortion. They're mm-hmm. not having these conversations about immigration. And so what I think is coming, what I'm seeing now, which I'm really excited about is that like in Tennessee, we're, we're facilitating a rural table with all of these organizations that have um, rural um, rural organizational supporters so that maybe we can start doing these kind of kitchen table, dining room discussions about these issues that are so pervasive in, in this community. Like the one person that is sponsoring all of the anti-immigration bills being pushed through the legislature is a guy from a very rural area that in mm-hmm. all of them. And so it's like, okay, who are the people that are sympathetic in those areas? And like, how can we knock door to door and like come to some type of, you know, understanding I would have really wanted to do. I've dreamt about this, which is wild. Cause I don't have a lot of dreams, but, uh, Oh God, I could talk about girl scouts for a long time, but we had international, oh, what was it called? I can't even remember, but every year you, uh, represented a country and you had to do Mm -hmm. a little performance piece. And anyway, so, uh, a a girl scout who was in my troop, um, who's very far right. Uh, but her dad was in Afghanistan and brought back this burqa and it's a full length burqa. I mean, it's like mesh, mesh, you know, mesh Mm -hmm. eye, um, cloth and then, you know, full length of the floor. And I thought about going into Griffey's district and wearing that. And then going into a really public, I mean, one, I'd probably get shot, but like two, going into a really public place and then taking it off and being like, let's have a conversation about what you just saw and like the fear that you had and like why and and kind of do a deep dive. Um, But that's, you know, my political theater stunts. But (laughs) anyways, there's been a lot of um, like those, uh, especially um, in the Muslim community, there's been a lot of women who um, cover their hair and, uh, in traditional garb, I guess, go out and table and they say, ask me anything. Or they Mm, put up signs mm, and they're like, ask me any questions. And they have a Quran and they have a Bible. And they do these things like, what is this? Do you think this is from the Quran or do you think it's from the Bible? Because the Bible has incredibly... It's the same, right. ...violent language in it. Right. Um, but also... Which I don't think a lot of people realize, especially in the South, and they're like, oh my gosh. Oh, like, oh I see. Like Sorry, Quran, I mistook it as like... Yeah, yeah, they're letter. like, the Quran, they're like, the, they think the Quran is... Every single time, the impulse is to say, the oh, the violent language is from the right. Quran, and it's always from the Bible. Wow. And then, like, the Quran will say, like, you know, like, some of the same types of language. They're very, they're very similar. Um, not in every way, but, like they have the same principles of justice. Um, but also like people don't live by the Bible, like, you know, killing their enemies and sleeping with their sisters and whatever, like other stuff. Sacri- Stoning women to death. Sacri- which I guess this is sacrificing like a- their children. Like it's, it, it's, um, like, yeah. And fantasy parables. Like that's what the Bible is anyway. Um, but, and, and then we're able to have the nuance for the Bible, but, like, we can't have any nuance for other people's culture. Uh, and we even still keep hearing that, like, that Islam is incompatible with the American Constitution, which I'm like, I think evangelical Christianity is incompatible. <laughs> Save for the people in the is back. With the Save for the people in the back of the room, Anna. Yeah. But, I mean, I think Yeah, let's talk about domestic terrorism, huh? <laughs> I think there's, oh, I mean, really, really. Really, like, though. Really, though. Okay, back to abortion. Any final thoughts on abortion? 
but yes, I think those types, it's conversation. It's literally conversation. Kitchen table, someone coming in and say, ask me anything. I'm, I'm Muslim. Ask me anything. And I mean that, that there's a certain weight that comes with that. And that, well, and it puts happen. the emotional burden and that's when people yes. like, you know, yes. of calling out microaggressions or like, and that's why as a white woman, it's like, let me do this because that shouldn't fall. The emotional burden should not fall on people of color, which is yeah. ends up what's happening. And particularly in a deep Southern state, like that could even turn violent as well as deadly. So yeah. But anyway, so that, wow. Lots of, <laughs> lots of tangents. Please, please let us know your hot takes on abortion. We'd love to hear it. Anna and I are, you change our mind on abortion. Although I probably would never change my mind that I think it should be safe, legal, and rare. Right? Mm -hmm. um, all right. Gratitude corner. So I asked Anna this earlier. Do you want to say to the pod what you said? Like, I have to be grateful for another thing. <laughs> Almost like an act of exhaustion. Like she's so exasperated about. Like now I'm thinking of as a chore. Like I have to like start tracking what I'm grateful for. Like. It's also, is it 11.30, the it's time change? Oh, it's 10.30. Okay. okay. Yeah, it's a, late, it's a late pod tonight. I guess I'm grateful for... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I thought I had something, but I don't. Wow. Whoa. I'm grateful for Afton. Oh, okay, that's funny, because I was going to say I'm thankful for you. Oh, well, she came over. She was here. Yeah, Anna was very low, low energy. Yeah, I'm um, low energy Jeb. <laughs> low energy Jeb. Like, I, Jeb... Jeb Bush is my spirit animal in a lot of ways, um, but <laughs> what? Wait, that's my in, like my. We're gonna have to unpack that a little bit. Like a, like a sloth. A, like a yes. Yeah, Remember when you said that like, on a previous pod? Yeah, that's I'm just like a sloth. Like I'm the slowest human. When everyone feels like rushed or like or like harried, I'm like completely calm. Like I'm just like whatever's gonna happen is gonna happen. <laughs> Which um, means that sometimes. Things go. I let things go. I'm pretty zen. So I'm glad I showed up. Zen. Good thing I am, uh, it could be borderline stalking in some states. So <laughs> I will show up and make sure you do the pod. But right. especially for mom, you know, we, we've, we've promised and we've been, we've been delivering every two weeks. I'm also grateful for you because I my well, my, in, in the grits gratitude corner was going to be talking about, uh, having the luxury to indulge in self care because most particularly low-income, hard-working Americans are, um, that they don't have luxury to, to indulge in self-care because they're in survival mode. Um, but I'm, I'm really grateful to have that luxury. And part of my self-care regimen is doing this pod. And so when people ask, do you have any hobbies? Used to be yoga. Now I don't have time to do that. <laughs> so, uh, I ask, well, I say, yeah, I've got, I've got a podcast with one of my besties and, and mm -hmm. I really enjoy it. And I learn a lot and we have a lot of fun. Um, yeah, so this has been fun. Uh, please rate and subscribe us. Please follow us on the social media channels and share us with your share all the the instas and the tweets with your friends. Um, we'd love to pick up a few more followers here and there, but once again, we don't want to get too big to sell out the Ryman because that's like it's like <laughs> Casey Musgraves and yeah, like Beck type uh, auditorium mm -hmm. standards and like we're not we're not there yet but eventually you gotta you that's gonna require a little less sloth so yeah I just want to fly first class everywhere and drink champagne. we did say we want to well that's that is very West Nashville so mm -hmm. uh we did say that we would like to get big enough one day to have our hair and makeup done every day like the Kardashians oh yeah because <laughs> that's nice like a news anchor uh, oh we could do the podcast like as a news show 
Do you think people would watch that? Um, maybe if it was shorter than an hour, <laughs> six minutes. <laughs> well, uh, everyone, you're welcome. You're welcome to get your day back. Uh, so please, once again, rate and subscribe us. Follow us on the social media channels, and we're grateful for y'all. So we'll see you. See you next time. See you in two weeks. Keep it gritty. Keep it gritty. Let's get gritty. Bye.